Who Cares About Watchmen? Episode 7, An Almost Religious Awe. Today for the seventh episode, we have myself, Neo, from Australia, and Ngiga from England, as usual. And we also have Nate from America, and Looms from Ireland. Ngiga and myself are both avowed fans of the 1980s Watchmen comic, as well as the Watchmen TV show's head honcho Damon Lindelof's recent TV work. Whereas Nate has a little bit more distance from the comic, having read it quite some time ago, although he also enjoyed Lindelof's TV show before Watchmen, called The Leftovers. Looms, what's your experience with Watchmen and with Damon Lindelof? Well, I've read Watchmen uh, twice, I think, uh, years ago. Um, watching, I'm reading through it again. Lindelof, I've seen Lost. I like that a lot. Um, oh, really? I thought it was pretty great. I even liked the ending, as weird as that is. Uh, wow. I, I tried to watch Prometheus. That's, that's as far as I can say about that. <laughs> I, fell asleep, I fell asleep three times, but it looked cool. I haven't seen The Leftovers yet, but I will get around to that. I think you're the first person on these that's seen Lost, though, so that's a pretty big thing. How have you been finding the show? I thought it was pretty good. Um, very sort of Lost-like at some moments. Mm. There's bits where it's sort of, oh, you know, something's going to come up in three episodes' time, and you're going to feel stupid because you didn't notice it four episodes mm. ago before we get into this episode. This week's episode was a bit of a moving pieces on the chessboard type of story. We opened on some information dumping about Dr. Manhattan and got the first of the episode's flashbacks to Sister Knight's to Angela's young life, where we saw her parents killed in Vietnam, her connection to the idea of policing beginning, and her grandma, Will Reeves's late wife attempt to take her in from an orphanage before dying of a heart attack tragically. Back in the present of 2019, Sister Knight recovers from gaining the memories of her grandfather Hooded Justice. Laurie Blake is kidnapped by the villainous 7th Cavalry, where their leader, Joe Keane Jr., bemoans how difficult he finds it to be a white man in America right now, before revealing he's planning to become a blue one, godly like Dr. Manhattan. Ozymandias endures a year of trials for his crimes, which he thinks very little of. Lady True reveals she wants to stop the 7th Cavalry from trapping the real Dr. Manhattan and gaining his powers. And then the biggest reveal of all, Angela, Sister Knight's husband Cal was, unknown to him, Dr. Manhattan all along, living an oblivious life as a human. Wow. Yeah, you just finished it, Nate, didn't you? Like a minute ago. Yeah. So you're, you're still reeling from the shock, right? A little bit, a little bit. I think I'm, uh, yeah, that, that bit at the end is what I've been thinking about nonstop. Uh, I'm, I'm a little pissed off that the, uh, the people on Reddit were right. <laughs> the knuckle analysts. Yeah, what a, what a twist. Did you guys actually all see the knuckle thing? Like, there was that, um, there was that Reddit post um, that used a screen cap from the trailer of Dr. Manhattan's finger and zoomed in on his knuckle and uh, identified it as matching the knuckle of the, the guy who plays Cal, and that was apparently proof that Cal was Manhattan. And the, of course, you know, being a sensible human being, I dismissed that out of hand, and it turns out, you know, it's completely, completely valid. It's the truth. It reminds me so much of the experience of watching the first season of Westworld back in the day where this was happening week after week, that exact kind of thing. Yeah, and everyone guessed the uh, the Excalibur 
how that's mm. Excal Abar. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's the one that I saw and I was like, okay, that is that is an interesting coincidence, but I didn't think it would be more than that. That's astonishing. What'd you think of it, Neo? Um uh it reminds me of the fourth week a lot in that it was uh, moving things around, getting people into position. Um, it felt a little unwieldy at times because of that. Uh, it, it succeeded in making me very keen for next week, which I guess is what it's setting out to do. But yeah, I was, um, I'm kind of confused. Like when Joe Keen's talking about masking both sides to like obscure, um, like who's good or who's bad. I think it's Laurie who's actually explaining this because she's worked out the plot or whatever. I'm trying to understand the what that actually means. Can anyone walk me through the utility of masking uh, both I sides think there? The basic premise of it, I think the sides that she's referring to that conversation, it basically refers to police who are directly allied with the, the 7K and that whole movement and ones that aren't, basically. And, um, well, obviously... I suppose because it's a bit it's a bit weird to articulate because I think if you know pretty much anything about certainly how American police work you can you can you can infer that putting masks on them and stripping them of any remaining shred of accountability is going to have is going to be something that has negative consequences acro- across the board but when you factor in cyclops as a, a uh, as like an, an element an active element here then I guess that kind of makes it, that just that exacerbates it I suppose so yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm I'm unconvinced of the whole good bad dichotomy here, but like I think I basically get what the idea is. Um, the the masks will allow um, Cyclops and the Seven K and so on to operate pretty much with impunity. Yeah, and masks are they're kind of dehumanizing as well. You know, there's there's the whole thing about police where everyone says, oh well, yes, I know they're I know they're bad as a whole or they've got rotten eggs but i know someone who's a very fantastic police officer and by forcing that into you know no one can say that anymore because it's it's a secret or at least that's that's my understanding i think we saw some without masks in this uh in this last episode if i'm not mistaken but yeah is what they wear technically a mask because it's like a pull up from the neck well, you know, it covers their face, so I think we don't need to be uh, sure. to split hairs when it comes to the definition of a mask. I mean, you know, Angela, Angela's mask is also partly her face paint, I guess, and that, there's all sorts of yeah. things that we can consider masks, even if they're not literal masks. Anyway, back to the episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, should I, should I say what I thought? Um, I think this episode is probably in my bottom two least favorite episodes of the show not that i don't enjoy it but i think um you can really tell when a show that's been firing on all cylinders suddenly stops doing that and maybe like the maybe it's a different writing credit this week and 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 you you watch the episode and it's playing out a bit less uh cleverly and interestingly than perhaps the show has in the past so the structure of this episode it was really it was lacking um something that episode four had which is really nice which was a sort of central linking motif or theme so in episode four it was eggs reproduction legacy family whereas in this one it's just um it really is basically a sequence of expository conversations and it kind of meanders from one thing to another you've got some great material in there because i really loved all the angela stuff and Angela's flashbacks and obviously you've got something of a bookend with that um, Manhattan opening and the, the big reveal at the very end but I think um, 
certainly it's there's a lot of stuff revealed in this app that maybe I kind of find myself wishing was revealed in a more uh, interesting way. Also, the Vite segment was fun, but it was kind of filler, in my opinion. I really liked this one. I thought the Game Warden was fantastic. I was loving that performance, his satisfaction with bringing out the pigs, all of that. I thought that was a great kind of farce. Uh, Ozzy's response was a little... Um, yeah, I didn't enjoy that as much, but I thought the speech of Crookshanks and Game Warden's dialogue was really good. So yeah, I guess it didn't accomplish much, but I had a good time with it this week. It was one of the more fun ones, like I, I found of the fight segments. I did love the pig squealing that he was guilty. <laughs> that was great. Very cute pig. And I'm thinking uh, at this point, True is his, his being Ozzy's daughter because all her stuff, like she references the Ozymandias poem, talking about they will gaze on our mighty work and oh, without despair right. this week. And she's like the PDpedia extra articles on HPO's website say she's been sending out deep space probes for ages. And Ozzy wrote, save me, duh. Like starting, a word starting with D, um, like two episodes back. And I'm wondering if that might be daughter and that might be their connection because there's like she bought out his company uh, in the backstory, and I'm wondering if their connections like super close, like familial close there. Uh, if not, I'm confused what their connection is, but I'm interested to see presumably next week. I say that's right because then when Angela was asking <clears throat> if her father was there too, she said no. So she says I'm like no, not yet, and he will be. Oh yeah. Oh. And then true. the start of episode four is like something from space landing in an area that True then immediately buys. Uh, so, yeah, that, that that might be right on the money. I'm not expecting their reunion to be some big heartwarming thing. I mean, Neo, you, you were <laughs> wondering if they have quite a close familial connection. I can't help but think that if... If he, would, if he had actually treated her like his daughter and that was a really close familial bond, it's like, well, why, 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 are they, why are they so separated? Why, you know, why, I mean, why doesn't she go, why doesn't she take his name? Why doesn't she, I mean, why, why is she so, like, separated from him? And why does she have to go to the, the extent of buying out his company with her own kind of amassed well, might be uh, like, talents and stuff? You know, um, Ozzy uh, got rid of all his parents' money. Uh, when he was a young adult, because he wanted to carve his own way in the world, it might be a kind of similar thing. Oh, that's a good, that's a good idea, actually. I, I'd say she's pretty close to him. I, I don't have a bronze statue of my dad in my room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very close likeness that statue as well. What do you think of the, st- the speculation that the statue is like a sort of um, Han Solo frozen in carbonite <sighs> thing? Invites actually in there. It seems to me like a case of people taking the transitions far too literally. I would have thought it was ridiculous before, but I thought the Cal Manhattan thing was ridiculous and. You know, I'm eating crow about that now, so I'm not trying to <laughs> say any theories too silly at this point. There's a lot of mysteries um, regarding Lady True introduced in this episode. So, um, not least the, not just um, the question of why she's collecting all those prayers from people in the booths, but also what the hell's with the elephant? Yeah, well, elephants do have very long memories. Yeah, right? elephants you never forget. And someone on Reddit noticed that the True logo is um, like an elephant's head and, and tusks. 
like you can and the, the bars of the tea are its ears and stuff so the elephant is clearly important and also another great catch is that um at the start of the um angela flashback thing in vietnam in the video store there are some vcr uh, v, uh, vhs tapes with a little cartoon elephant on them kind of foreshadowing that so i'm like what so what what why is the elephant something become so important i suppose like her whole thing seems to be memory and sort of uh, also memories empathy elephants are very empathetic animals Oh, I'll ask a point too, actually. And Beyond did mention empathy in that it's the subject of her dissertation. Yeah. So maybe her big plan is, like we've speculated, is she trying to do some nostalgia-esque thing of forcing people to experience memories to try and make people more empathetic? Or is she trying to erase people's memories? Because she had that speech about the future and people getting fixated on their pasts in this episode. I wonder if it's she wants to capture Manhattan and like force him to experience all these phone calls, hoping that that kind of <laughs> makes him more empathetic and less likely to just ignore people. See, I'm also wondering, um, I think this is something that we might have speculated about on past episodes, but uh, there was a theory that maybe she wants to bring back people like, for example, you know, the victims of the Tulsa massacre or whatever. And we saw in this episode that she's trying to bring back her mother through the medium of cloning and memory implantation. And that seems, I mean, that seems to maybe add some fuel to that whole, she wants to bring back the dead theory. But uh, I'm not quite sure how that will factor into anything at all. It's certainly the idea of being burdened by the past. It doesn't, I'm not quite sure why she would then want to do something like bring the past back to life in living form. And Maybe it's getting a bit uh, leftovers here <laughs> again. Yeah. yeah. One theory that I saw was that the purpose of the Millennium Clock is to erase uh, everyone's memory of the squid. Oh. I, yeah, I liked that idea, especially since we, I mean, it would kind of retroactively give a second purpose to the whole episode with Mirror Guy. Um, yeah. You know, seeing how much it has traumatized people and how even there's secondhand trauma about it. And so that would be an interesting way to kind of try to fix her father's legacy, I suppose. Yeah, maybe that's her disconnect with him, is that she disapproves of the squid. Uh, what's Will's purpose in, in the plan like too? Or is his part fulfilled getting Angela involved and getting Manhattan well, This episode as well, that was strange. He was gone. Oh, maybe it's... Um, because True seems to know that Kala's Manhattan uh, when she's talking to Angela. Maybe they needed Angela and like Will was their connection there. Yeah, I wonder how he factors into things. Something's going on with Will. Like, I'm, I'm concerned. She's, Lady True was very insistent on him, like, not seeing Angela. And she seemed to sort of be playing up the, um, the deception regarding the, the contents of that room, which had the elephant in. So I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned in general. I'm, I've been wondering, is Will, is Will a clone? Is Will, like, dead? Is Will gonna, is Will just been incinerated and replaced with a new copy? Like, what's even going on with Will? Why can he still walk at 105? Why can he sort of reach his hand into boiling water? without feeling any sort of sensation like there's just something really weird going on there and i'm not sure what it is well my brief reaction was that the reason he's been able to live so long is that he transforms into an elephant so that was <laughs> that was my uh, i thought that's where they were going for for embarrassingly long but that's okay yeah i i, I, don't, I don't like the thing how he stood up uh, at the end of episode four, I think it was more interesting when he was frail, or it's at least appeared frail, and was using his mesmer torch. I know we learned that later, but it seems more interesting for him to be like bodily weak 
So I hope he's not a clone. I find when you start doing clones everywhere, not just in Aussie segments, everything feels a little bit sci-fi and harder to like uh, connect <laughs> into. Wouldn't Watchmen to feel sci-fi? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like clones for like a plot point in the book or anything. Yeah, it just it's it it meshes weirdly with like the race stuff. I think that um that Will's so central to. I mean, see, the thing is, we can talk about you know the sci-fi elements meshing weirdly with the race stuff, but you know the the crux of the alternate history in the book is a gigantic blue sort of magic man conquering Vietnam, and there is there's a race dimension to that as well. I think in terms of you know Western imperialism and stuff, so it's always kind of there, even if it's like not as obvious all the time. It, it, there's so much to unpack with Manhattan. So we like the start of the episode clarifies um, he was a. Jewish immigrant from Germany, which isn't actually um, flat out said in the comic, although you can certainly read that into it. They don't quite clarify his um, like ancestry that specifically, uh, but that works. And so we get that, and we see a picture from as a kid, where you know he's obviously you know white Jewish kid, uh, and then he was blue later on, and then he's lived a good few years as 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 Black Manta, you know, as as a black man that's very interesting as a certain friend of ours might put it um he's been taking moral cues from justin trudeau <laughs> he's um he's a, he's a specialist in the art of black uh illusionism i'm not gonna take this any further but you, you know what i mean it's it's a very um it's a curious choice because you know he's like Manhattan cannot meaningfully be said to be a black man, but he's not really he's not really anything at this point. He's just he yeah. you know, he's just atoms yeah. that can rearrange them. So there's it seems like they're gonna go into that quite interestingly in the next episode. Like what's it like him to do that? The PDPedia stuff this week clarified a little bit. It seems that this version of Manhattan, like this actor for Manhattan, came into existence in Vietnam uh was it like two thousand and nine, around then, as a um what was the stuff about pyramid industries? Did anyone else read this? Um, he, they said, um, well, part of his backstory, and which may be fictitious, considering Angela was complicit in this whole thing, but they they mentioned him being like an employee of Pyramid Global Corporations or something. Like that. I don't know if that's um, affiliated with anything in the comic. I think it might be a reference to something. Pyramids, are Aussies like shell company. Ah, right, 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 right. I think, oh yeah, that's part. That's part of the whole. Um, that's revealed in the whole murder. That's what Rorschach um, discovers, yeah. and that's the conspiracy. Yeah. Well, it might just be a cute reference, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so he's lived, like, for at least 10 years, obliviously, as this man. Like, so that's not like a LARP, necessarily. Like, he's actually lived that, but he never had a childhood as this person. And so it's all... The way you can read him, like, it's a very weird, like, half-identity. I think the, the extent to which Cal is actually Dr. Manhattan, I think, is something that you can call into question. Like, obviously, we've all watched um, the Doctor Who episode, Human Nature, and it seems to be that sort of thing. Like, there's a kind of, there's a Cal persona that is in play, which sort of disappears or whatever when Dr. Manhattan comes back sort of into the fold. And sort of, I, I'm sure they'll uh, dig into that uh, quite uh, a lot, but it's, I suppose it really is... Um, it's very the extent to to what extent is Doctor Manhattan living as a black man? It's it's quite um, ambiguous. I think honestly, I think the real the real sort of shocking thing about this whole revelation is that is what it says about Angela and what we know about Angela that she knew this whole time yes. and she was keeping it secret. She's been married to the most powerful being in existence this whole time. 
Yeah, all along it seemed like Angela was the audience point of view character. She is kind of just an ordinary person who's been thrown into this crazy, you know, all these revelations about her backstory and the unfolding conspiracies. And yet now it turns out that she's not at all an audience uh, stand-in. There were all these times where I was wondering, why is she keeping so much of this secret from the other police force members? And it's because she's used to keeping things secret. She has the biggest secret in the world. Yeah, that um, that closing scene where she sort of where the mask slipped, so to speak, and she started talking to Cal when she was about to you know, knock his brains out. That um, that's it was like seeing a whole new side of her because all of a sudden she was really like, completely alienated from us as a viewer. She was it was really creepy and just scary. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. It's more interesting to have her like this than to have her like be shocked by it, which feels like a kind of yeah we've seen stories like that we've seen stories in that like doctor who you were talking about before where you know someone didn't know this other person was like a hidden identity or whatever it's more interesting i think to blindside us uh, and see that we weren't as identified with her as an audience character like nate was saying before like i'm much more interested in what looks like her second flashback episode next week now well a third flashback episode with how many there were in this uh Oh, yes, she had one in episode two as well, didn't she? Well, she is the main character. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder about... Well, it makes sense from a storytelling perspective. In human nature, the audience knew from the start. Whereas here, you know, we're the ones with the wool pulled over our eyes. We're the ones who are being surprised by this uh, revelation. Yeah, and I, I do wonder, you know, with how she was referring to Dr. Manhattan as kind of being inside Cal rather than... You know, it, it, there was something about a tunnel. Right? Yeah, time to come out of the tunnel is what she said. Like, he's in the yeah. tunnel and he will be emerged from it. Yeah, and I almost thought that, like, Dr. Manhattan was inside Cal somehow. Like, he was wearing his skin, uh, you know, with how she was taking the hammer to him. Um, obviously, that's not quite the case. But it's still interesting to see, you know. I'm, I am curious to learn more about how much Cal exactly knew. Yeah. I don't necessarily love bringing Manhattan back because I think his ending in the comic is really final. Like he's Mm -hmm. grown tired of humans enough, but he's also seen the kind of miracle of them. But now he wants to go off and make his own life, you know, in probably another galaxy. Like I was complaining a lot when this show started that just having him on Mars was seemed like in conflict with that. Like he, he didn't mean to stay on Mars and experiment and the stuff we saw of him in the show on Mars looked like he was just making castles, not really making much in the way of life. So I was very glad when True said he's not even on Mars. But then the thing that he's come back as a human, like I prefer this to the idea that if we're going to see Manhattan again, I'd rather him be doing something with humanity than just parking on Mars for some reason. But the whole story of like a god having to live as a human i mean it's very jesus-like it's like we've seen this kind of story before so i'm interested like you know last week we all we mostly loved the episode last week but tid complained a little because it was kind of a in some ways it was a straightforward superhero story hooded justice's story and here like i just worry that the manhattan i have to live as a human because i've grown too disconnected or you know i i've forgotten what it feels like to have empathy or be part of society i hope it's not done too uh traditionally if you know what i mean 
Lindelof did his whole interview after this episode transmitted, and he literally said outright that he was drawing on Greco-Roman mythology in terms of how he was uh, wanted to integrate Manhattan into the show. So like, it's that that whole story, you know, the god comes down to have a love affair with a human, and he, he said it was like intuitively this was the way to do it and stuff. And something else he said in that in that response actually was that when he was drawing up what he wanted to do with the show, he sort of had a list of things that he would want to see in it as a fan, uh, what what he'd want to see in the show that had the name Watchmen, and obviously near the top of that list was Doctor Ma- having Dr. Manhattan in it. And I wonder about that. Like, is looking at it from a fan's perspective actually the best way to do it? I, I find myself wondering, would it not actually be somewhat of a quite brave statement to just not have Manhattan in it at all? But at the same time, I am warming to this um, this development of having Manhattan be Angela's uh, squeeze. Because at first I was concerned that it might crowd out all the interesting stuff in the story. Because, you know, Angela seems to very much have her own... She has this huge whole law with her justice going on. She has this whole journey. So tacking Manhattan on at virtually like the 11th hour seems like it might it threatens to sort of destabilise that. But there is one thing. And in the comic, uh, Manhattan is sort of... Manhattan's whole interest in life is rekindled by him observing how complicated and almost impossible Laurie's life is and how sort of complicated it all was. So I think it's believable that if he was going to be drawn to another woman, you know, decades later, it would be someone with as wild of a story as Angela, right? So it's almost like it actually, it sort of narratively makes sense. It's not just bunching on extra plot points. It's because these two things actually do go together. I I agree with that. He likes... Uh, people that have a lot of convergences like that. I, I don't think it's out of character for him to go with her. The, the fan service thing, like next week is going to have every living crime buster, 80s superhero, except for Dan. Like, that's a lot. Yeah, I, I seem to remember that Lindelof said that his approach toward uh, building off of the previous, you know, the Watchmen comic would be that that was the Old Testament and this is the New Testament. So maybe yeah. that Jesus comparison isn't too uh, far off after all. But <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I was going to say is that my worry with the Manhattan stuff is like uh, Looms has seen Lost. We've seen the leftovers. Like it's very easy for Lindelof to start tipping into all kind of spirituality mm-hmm. stuff, and Manhattan's a really easy vehicle for that. And I don't really want that. Like if we focus on the blue black man stuff and the Manhattan Vietnam colonization stuff that's cool because that feels connected to the show's first six episodes about race and legacy and stuff i just don't want the show to kind of get really hooked on all the spiritual manhattan you know absurd craziness uh towards the end now and kind of drift away from what the first six episodes were more about that's my big fear I, I'm sort of worried that now have to, <clears throat> having manhattan in is sort of like a giant walking plot solver now that yeah yeah, yeah, he has become somewhat of a MacGuffin now because the Seven K's whole plan revolves around him, and presumably, like Lady True houses Manhattan Booth, so presumably her plan has something to do with him as well. Maybe the yeah. reason I think the Seven K hooked into him is because you remember in the second episode the flashback of on White Knight Angela and Cal getting attacked, and we see the first shooter get taken care of, but we don't see what happens to the second shooter. I'm presuming that Cal got a little zippy zappy Manhattan mode and somehow the 7k um will someone survive to hear that or report on it and that's how they've known uh all along 
Yeah, Jane did say that something extraordinary happened and then we scaled up our ambitions. So presumably that was Manhattan making an appearance and that was when they found out that he was Cal. That's when the whole plan uh, came into being. Cal L. Yeah. Another superhero, Superman parallel. I do think there is some Manhattan even poking around in there. Because in the PGpedia thing, it does say that he declined the MRI test and he was amused by the Manhattan bobbleheads on the doctor's desk. Yeah. So uh, there's some Manhattan in there somewhere. It also mentioned that he was circumcised, so I guess given <laughs> his origins, that is also a little bit of Manhattan knocking around in there. So are the Seventh Cavalry coming together, and they're gonna like tie into Doomsday Clock, and they're gonna bring the Justice League, and Batman's gonna hit <laughs> Manhattan really hard, and Doomsday Clock will come out after the finale, and it'll all make sense, and we'll be happy. I mean, I speculated it could be the other way round, and Doomsday Clock will end with Manhattan saying, "I'm now gonna go to Earth to live as a black man." And it's like a big war <laughs> for the show. Yeah, there was... I mean, thinking about where it can go from here, I feel like the plot has been spelled out, and I'm sure that it will be more uh, twisty and there will be all kinds of unexpected elements, because of course there will. But uh, this really was the exposition episode. We had everyone just sitting down and saying what their game plan was, with the exception of those lingering... Uh, concerns about Lady True and how how Ozymandias is going to tie back into it when he returns home. But, I mean, we heard the master plan from the 7th Cavalry. You know, we now know that Dr. Manhattan is here. We have a pretty good guess of what's going to happen to Mirror Guy. Or at least, I don't know, the, the that mask was missing. That yeah, yeah. Like, uh, presumably picked up a mask and he's infiltrating. I mean, how much of the remaining story do you think we could write just with what we have now? Just tying up the loose ends. I guess that's that's going to be the test of the next few episodes for me. For me. I think what's going to happen is um, is Ep 8 is going to swallow up most of the stuff we, we think is going to happen. I think Manhattan's going to have all his stuff in that. He's probably going to die for real on that. And then the finale will kind of snap back and deal with the fallout and the more lower stakes stuff the show was originally about. This is just a hunch. Like, I don't really have evidence for this. It's just a feeling that there'll be a big Manhattan showcase ep, but I don't think it's what the show wants to end, like, completely about. I agree. That sounds that sounds like a good expectation. Yeah, I do, I do think, like, I, I'm, I'm on board with that, episode eight being the main Manhattan thing. I'm not... I'm sort of, I'm not married to the idea of him dying, but maybe, I, I'd be really sad if he died, basically. Um, I do yeah. think it's possible that rather than dying, maybe like, maybe he just goes up another level again, and he becomes like the sentience of the entire universe, and he exists in every atom of every flower now. Like, he's just, he's gone beyond even being a human form anymore. Like, I don't know, something like that. But, but yeah, and it's certainly, if you want to do like a, a big follow-up to Watchmen that kind of actually changes the status quo and does the next big event after the squid. Certainly something like the end of Manhattan is going to be a thing. And at the same time, I think there's so much to like tie up with the Millennium Clock and Lady True and Vietnam and Vite and stuff and, and racism. And, and it, it almost seems like you have to get the Manhattan stuff out of the way first, you know? I think we might see the John slash Cal Manhattan gone. Joe Keane succeed in 
becoming a newly coloured blue man. And then True's plan, which, like, if it's to, like, unload a heap of empathy onto someone, work on him, and then it kind of not be that material that he was a white supremacist beforehand, because True will succeed in warping him, which whoever's Manhattan, I think, probably isn't too important if she's trying to affect Manhattan, because what's the difference if the idea is to change who he is? Interesting. So the idea is to, uh, to, to fight the CEO of racism... And <laughs> well, yeah, turn into the CEO of anti racism, basically. Perfect. The wallets. Angela had all those tablets of wills, and True said, You can't really tell where you end and where he begins. If you could um, give all these phone box things somehow connect to Manhattan, to all these people, like everyone on the planet, if he couldn't tell where he ended and like billions of people began, I think that could be pretty interesting, and it probably wouldn't matter that much how much from Oklahoma he was beforehand. Yeah, that that would be a satisfying uh that would be a satisfying ending. I me. will admit, if Lady True's plan is straightforwardly um sort of net benevolent and just sort of like, okay, let's turn Manhattan into a benevolent uh, deity or whatever, I'll be a tiny bit disappointed because I found myself hoping over the course of the series that what she was doing would somehow involve some sort of big revenge on America somehow yeah. because you know I mean she named herself after a, like a famous Vietnamese figure who fought like uh, occupation and stuff and and uh, and certainly the 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 conquest of Vietnam is sort of that big sort of foundational violence of sort of the Watchmen timeline and we see in this episode we see some people trying to get revenge for that we see the terrorists who um, blow up Angela's Angela's parents and also in the episode revenge seems to be a, a bit of a thing um, I remember Tim Blake Nelson who plays uh, Looking Glass, said in an interview a while back that he considers the theme of the show to be revenge. And in this episode, we had not only the terrorists, but we also had um, Angela, even as a little girl, we had Angela um, staying around to listen to them shoot the head of the guy who killed her parents. And and that kind of is what puts her on the path to becoming a police officer, almost like she wants to get get her own back in a way for the trauma that was visited upon her and obviously the irony there is that the terrorists were trying to get their own back for something that was done to them and it sort of becomes this big chain of sort of injustices kind of following on from other ones and it, it, it strikes me that like it would be a bit weird if maybe the ultimate sort of resolution of the show doesn't sort of come back to that idea somehow the idea that there's always like some sort of karmic payoff for historical injustices and uh, violence that that's done on, on that note of angela's flashbacks you know showing how tough vietnam had it and how tough she had it specifically like that orphanage was absolutely terrible i think it worked well that we saw all this stuff in the same episode that joe Keane jr is talking about how tremendously difficult it is you know for a guy like him in america these days yeah and then actually realizing you know someone with a really difficult lives like in vietnam i thought that worked well that's a great line. <laughs> a bit about uh, it's so hard to be a white man. I mean, it's obviously it's funny in this context because even though it's something that people say in real life, in this sort of universe, you've got this what, what we've been calling the liberal dystopia, which is where <laughs> sort of there's a uh, sort of tax uh, tax breaks for black people and so on and so forth. But like even I think it's it's funny because it's a nice statement because even in this uh, timeline where things actually are kind of the, the the scales actually are like tipped somewhat to sort of like try and redress injustices like. You You've got people who are still complaining about it and people who are still taking unbelievably disproportionate like measures to like fight for for white power or whatever. 
Like that's it's it's just amusing irony. Um, returning to the Vietnam thing briefly, something I, a little detail I really liked was that when Angela was looking at the puppet show of the conquest of Vietnam, they had the flashback cuts to the, the Tulsa massacre. It was kind of like they were yes. subtly drawing, yeah, they were subtly drawing the link between those events and like the, just the generally those as sort of traumatic events and events of sort of oppression and kind of violence. Um, there was they sort of they muddied the waters a bit because they kept playing the sort of Tulsa flashbacks um into that scene with sort of the terrorists kind of blowing up her parents so that's more of a general trauma thing I guess because that's Angela's trauma where Tulsa is um Will's trauma but I did um something else that I liked actually on this note was that when they put the hood over the terrorist's head when they were going to take him away to execute him we got a shot of um Hooded Justice putting the the execution hood over his head so it's it's I, I like that they're still willing to sort of draw those links and kind of show how it's not really sort of black and white you know what i mean yeah yeah i i really have loved all of the uh the the social commentary on race and oppression in this show and that was one of those examples that when i saw it, i was like oh wow that was definitely there was definitely a message to that i'm not sure what it was i'll have to figure that out later um so i guess now is my chance but uh, the parallels between the, uh, the, you know, obviously horrid oppression suffered by the people of Tulsa in the flashbacks versus the, you know, the, the passive but also very real oppression of the, uh, the Vietnamese in um, the other flashback, I suppose. Uh, juxtaposing that was a great, a great move, especially since the representatives of that oppression in Vietnam were her parents who were black so yeah. it's a mm. it's a sort of like the the cycle is continuing in a way that's how I saw it yeah and, that's a good um, point yeah I, I think it's uh everything they've done with I know we've already talked about how the police you know in in previous episodes about what it's like or what it means that um you know the police are shown to be uh you know not majority black, but there's a lot of black cops there. Uh, we, we see a lot of black cops, whereas, you know, juxtaposing that with current reality in America is fascinating. On that note of the cycle that keeps repeating and black people sort of putting themselves into the police force, and something that struck me when um, during the conversation between uh, sort of old grandma June and young Angela, when Angela says that she wants to be a police officer and June's like, oh, well, of course you do. And it struck me that you have that such that's such a generational thing of um, sort of Will being a cop and then sort of Marcus being like a sort of a cop and whatever and Marcus being a soldier I think and then Angela wanted to be a yeah. cop and I think it, it comes off almost like this is a bit like a disease almost and maybe this is not quite sort of the angle they were striking with it but certainly the way in which the show has concerned itself a lot with traumas that are passed down from generation to generation and this sort of police occupation this idea of wanting to be someone who imposes uh sort of the the, the law of the country or whatever in some capacity i think and i think a soldier kind of falls under this category as well i think mm -hmm. th the idea that that's also something that's passed down that casts that in a slightly sort of suspect light because it you know it's sort of saying that that, you know, with Angela being motivated to join the cops through, you know, her own trauma, her own desire for justice and revenge and stuff, it it's sort of showing how 
these institutions that are very much complicit in upholding sort of oppression and so on, that's kind of perpetuated through these uh, familial mechanics and, and and just the way in which it sort of keeps perpetuating perpetuating itself by just conjuring up sort of this just generally society conjuring up more trauma which people want to kind of get their own back for and end up feeding into the system that creates the trauma. It's a bit it's a bit elaborate, but yeah. Yeah, that's deep gig. That's very deep. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to read um, Thou Shall Not Leave, the rule of Europa, Jupiter's moon, that Aussie and all the clones and the great game warden are on. I'm really trying to push that onto some other part of this episode. Does, where, where can I push this? Thou Shall Not Leave Vietnam, Thou Shall Not Leave Tulsa, that big thematic information loading of gigs. I want to find something I can wonkly project onto it. You know, the, the Vite stuff is really difficult. Yeah, I've tried a lot to kind of see where kind of the links are with the show show. And certainly you've got the game warden who wears his little kind of lawman mask and rides around on a horse like Bass Reeves. But, like, it's so difficult to actually kind of kind of see what, what, what the point is, so to speak. Like, certainly Vite in this little society full of these people who he sees as beneath him seems to be kind of uh, maybe a, a model of sorts of maybe his general situation like he's being put on trial for his past crimes and he just utterly doesn't doesn't care and maybe in some sense it's like an extrapolation of maybe what he was like on earth kind of viewing himself as this alexander the great figure but it's i I don't know it's it's so ambiguous and so i wonder if the clones are meant to are we meant to kind of think this is how you know he could get three million people killed because he sees most people kind of dehumanized and like the same as this like they're not him and he doesn't have much empathy. So I uh, like Crookshanks and Phillips, kind of his general impression of humanity, even just kind of way more masked off. I don't know if that's accurate, but I was wondering about it in the scenes of seeing all their faces, G. Adam in the courtroom this episode. Also mm-hmm. on the thing of um, thou must not leave specifically, the, the thing that came to my mind the most thinking about that line is um, Manhattan leaving. Because certainly, you know, the, the example of sort of a master figure who is sort of, who everyone is serving, just abandoning and just trying, just trying to skip out and leave the place. That's sort of like the only one who's done something like that. Really, is Manhattan. He's the god who's abandoned his his domain, so to speak. And maybe, and there seems to be such a such a stigma against Vite like leaving this domain, leaving them just to their own devices. It's so. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's it's quite it's such a mixed bag of symbols. Yes, and maybe. Uh, wow. What should I say? They're they're resenting Manhattan for leaving in a in a sense, you know, they were saying that their their creator or no, I suppose their creator isn't necessarily Manhattan, so I can't quite draw that. I do wonder that, yeah. We're definitely getting it vague whether it's true. I think it's gotta be Manhattan, because now I'm sold on Aussie thinking true's his escape ticket, which means presumably she didn't put him there. So presumably it was Manhattan who put him there, but it's still vague enough you can flip it a lot of ways. Yeah, that is, that would be very true. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, there is that parallel between in this courtroom sequence, I definitely got the feeling that he was, even though he had such disregard for it, he was kind of being humbled, he was kind of being laid low. Uh, That list of his crimes being read out, and then at the end when he's so uh, confident that he has, you know, shown the thing to be a farce with his... uh, response, I suppose. Um, you know, then the game warden completely one-ups him, and he looks genu- genuinely dismayed toward the end of that scene. There's a tear uh, rolling down his cheek. He's, yeah. he's starting to cry. 
there's someone much cooler and much more in control of him in these scenes. The game one's just incredible. I'm so enamored by him. Yeah, there's, I think there's that parallel of, uh, that, well, if I was really, you know, grasping for straws, I could say that there's the parallel between how Dr. Manhattan has been, in a sense, laid low uh, by becoming a human versus how Ozymandias has been humbled by his um, well, subjects, I suppose, his servants. Um, and But the difference... The difference being, of course, that Ozymandias is not doing it consensually, and even when he is in that scenario, he can't help but try to assert himself, whereas Dr. Manhattan did it willingly and uh, and, and committed to the role by just being another one of the... Yeah, I, I, f- I feel like there's something kind of appropriate in Ozzy for years and years and years, years and years, being trapped <laughs> in this realm of just like abstractions like not real people just like kind of uh yeah abstractions of what a person is like uh, it's just the same two models repeated over and over and over it's like how if you're you know doing a video game or you're doing like a calculation you're not actually taking into account separate people it's just like one times a million it's like the one unit times a million i think this kind of works into how it's like a statistical view and that's the kind of thing he figured when he was working out how to save humanity and the squid fall and all that it's you know viewing things as statistics i can save billions by killing millions so i think there's something for his whole not just this episode his whole arc of having these like clones around him i think it feels kind of right that he's not surrounded by real people i have a small thought about the thou shalt not leave thing and i just wonder is it are we actually overthinking it maybe could it be that the thou shalt not leave concept is just because well if you go outside the dome you die because there's no oxygen <laughs> maybe this was a rule that was instituted at the beginning for the safety of the occupants and just because uh, Vite is trying to contravene it in a way that's actually you know safe because he's got a spacesuit and stuff he's still breaking the rule and the rules are something that the clones have sort of taken like as like as gospel so like Vite is committing some great crime by trying to leave maybe it's not so much about him actually going so much as just the fact he's not like obeying well, the rules that were set out i don't know what's interesting there is you're talking about social cohesion which is the subject of beyond's thesis adaptive functions of empathy in the role of rage suppression and social cohesion and a rule like that to prevent people you know just dying by going out into the cold vacuum of space is totally social cohesion so Rage suppression seems like a, an important point. Uh, I mean, certainly when you've got characters as angry as, you know, Angela and Will in the show. Yeah, I really want to read this thesis. I, I, I wish the whole thing was like an 80-page Peterpedia thing, because it sounds quite interesting. Just one quick uh, observation, something that clicked into place for me after watching the episode is um, we now know the real reason that Joe Keen wanted Wade to take Angela off the board for a couple of days. It's because he yeah. wanted uh, a good shot at Cal, basically. He wanted her out of the way so he could grab her husband, I guess. Oh, true. Okay, totally unrelated to that, but the thing, something that uh, was in this episode that really stuck out to me, and I'm not sure, is it going to go somewhere, is it not? We got that very foregrounded sequence where we have it explained to us how the cure for a nostalgia overdose works. We have a CGI animation for it and everything, uh, how they use an active host to flush out the memories, sort of exterminate it, like... <laughs> with, with a kind of getting rid of the infection with sort of whatever the hell that the fluid was and stuff. I wonder, like, would they actually go to the extent of explaining that in such detail if it's not going to form part yeah. of the ultimate plot? 
this this is why I think there's some kind of forced nostalgia, forced empathy stuff going on. But then again, Chu's also got the Mesmer technology. Like, she's got so much she can use. But if they're explaining nostalgia more than they're explaining the Mesmerism, so the plan's probably about nostalgia. Although she did install HDTVs all over Oklahoma, so... That's also true. Yeah, I think the hate, the, the mesmerism thing, the HDTVs, it could be that that's just a very small step in the plan. Like, she sends out a signal saying, okay, walk outside now, and that's all the, well, that's all the mesmerism is required for, and then once they're outside, the clock will zap them with, I don't know what, like, all kinds of things. Very Christmas invasion, like, everyone needs to walk up to the roofs so our empathy bombs can hit you. Well, I think that if we're comparing that hypothetical ending to a Doctor Who episode, I would have to think of all the power of love uh, episodes. <laughs> like, let's see, the one with the the, the rings of a cotton, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, Manhattan is the sun, and the leaf is the well, whatever. Bill's mum just went viral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <In this case. laughs> yeah. <laughs> On this kind of note of the true stuff i was really entranced by something she said i'm just going to say verbatim because i feel like it needs unpacking that i can't do alone Uh, it's when she said i gave people the means to visit the past so they could learn from it so they could evolve and transform and better themselves instead they became fixated on their most painful memories choosing to experience the worst moments of their lives over and over again and why because they were afraid afraid that once unburdened by the trauma of the past they would have no excuse not to move gloriously into the future. That last part sounds really supervillain, but the general idea of that uh, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it certainly seems like uh, a bit of a definitive response to that whole trauma theme in the show, and certainly it's fuel for the fire. If you have, if your theory is that you think she's going to erase everyone's memory of you know something or other, it, it's just it, it's intriguing because it, it's kind of also a rebuke of the whole superhero thing of being obsessed with your traumatic backstory. She's kind of like saying like you know get over yourself, you know stop stop fixating on like the, the horrible things that have happened to you. Just just you know just just suck it up and deal with it, lol. It's it's a bit, yeah. June June was kind of like that when she dismissed Ob's ah uh, not Ob um what's his name the Will son or Marcus Marcus yeah when she kind of dismissed his you know oh you can't trust masks Angela masks are you know so terrible and all that and she just kind of wiped it away as oh he had a scary experience related to masks once. Yeah, I, I like that actually. That that bit of her just kind of just dismissing that whole sort of anti-mask agenda by just saying even that was just a product of kind of a childhood trauma that he never quite got over. Actually, you know, I liked the old June in general, and I thought her whole story yeah. was really, really heartbreaking. Yeah, like the whole thing of like you know, uh, sort of completely falling out with her son over his decision to participate in Vietnam, which I get, like, I think if she has certain ideological commitments, she would absolutely, like, say, like, flat out no to him on that, but to find out that he was dead after not having spoken to him, and, and she, she comes back to get Angela and she just dies anyway, it's just all so sad, like, I can't believe all those people who we met in episode six, they're just dead now, like, what the hell? Um, something I, I, I guess this is you know, unrelated, but uh, a theory that I saw online that I thought could be, you know, promising is that uh, next episode when we find out why exactly Dr. Manhattan picked Angela and how that whole process went down, um, they suggested that there was a connection between 
Angela's great-grandfather and his time in uh, World War II and young Dr. Manhattan, saying that maybe he, like, saved Dr. Manhattan from something, and then that led to the connection. Well, there's an idea. Do these... I'm trying to work out the timelines. So, Manhattan became Manhattan in, like, 59, wasn't it? And he was in, like, his 30s then. So, an OB was a young soldier in the 20s. I, I'm not good with yeah, maths. OB, does, this, does this work OB out? OB died in the Tulsa Massacre, right? And that's in the, the 20s. So in, tw- in 21. Oh, okay. So that must have been World War One. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's World War One that he was in. That We saw him in the start of Episode 2 with the whole propaganda fire. Okay. That was a World War One thing. Well, you know what? I like the theory anyway. Can there, can there be a connection between any Reeveses and uh, Manhattan or Manhattan's father? I'm, I'm interested in this idea. I'm trying to see if there's a way it can work. It is a very Lindelof-y thing to do. It's very lost, having yeah. everyone connected some way. At the same time, I, I, I'm just going to spoil the party here. I hope they don't do that. I kind of hate the idea of <laughs> Manhattan's childhood having some connection to, you know, Angela's grandfather or whatever. I think it's more interesting if he's actually just drawn to her specifically and oh, her yeah, whole circumstances, so. rather than the fact that her circumstances intersect with his in any sort of fancy schmancy way. I think there's just, I think there's something, there's something very Manhattan-y, Manhattan-y about him just sort of like going after her. I mean, I feel like we were sort of skirting around the thing with Manhattan, which, which is that Manhattan's kind of skeevy. Like, he, he's, yeah. he's oh, yeah. got some women issues, I think. Maybe need unpacking. It's not the first time he's traded in for a newer model. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least Angela's uh, an adult when he meets her. Yeah, that's true. I can't wait to see uh, Laurie's reaction to <laughs> Cal being Manhattan. That's just going to be... That's going to be great. She's going to be crushed. But it's sort of like Doctor Who thing with the age that... Yeah, technically she's an adult, She's an adult, but when he's all-knowing and all-seeing... Mm. Is she to him? It's a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It works for me because um, Angela's like she's not she's far from perfect. We've seen a lot of her flaws and her kind of issues with her worldview and everything. But it's getting a little young adult novel in here with how like she's uh, the wife to God and she's the granddaughter of the first superhero. Like it's all I can everything. Fix him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they. I I do want there to be some kind of good explanation for why it is that Manhattan picked her because you know I don't know if uh if I would be satisfied by just Manhattan looking at her and saying oh you have a uh, you know a tragic backstory and your grandfather was interesting or it could be that uh, Manhattan says well this is just how it was always going to be uh, I mean, because you know he can read the script um, he picked he picked Laurie Partly, well, a very big part of that was just physical reasons. So, like, we can't rule out a very base explanation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be that would be disappointing to me. But he's just attracted to our thermodynamic miracles. Why not? Like, <laughs> there's been a lot of discussion about sort of why would Manhattan pick Angela. See, I'm wondering about why why would Angela pick Manhattan 
because that that's the bigger question that's the question mark to me like okay like okay he might be hot and you can sort of do all sorts of stuff but like to, to just meet this guy what is it about angela that not only makes her want to be like this guy's girlfriend but also to go into this whole pact of sort of him humanizing himself and just her like having the secret of living with god or whatever just so they can be together like what 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 within Angela spurred on that romance? I really wonder about that. I thought there, there might be an answer there, something to do with just how messed up she is in general, but I just, I'm curious to what, what that is. Yeah. Uh, her family is no stranger to weird power imbalances, given how <laughs> uh, Will seems to have essentially raised his wife. So... That's a good point. That's a good point. The, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if he actually raised her per se. They don't quite, They don't make that explicit if they were together the whole time or if they separated That's ways true. at some point. But yeah, I, th I think I, I seem to remember some one of the writers had canons is that they reconnected at some point. Anyway, that's irrelevant. Angela spent her whole childhood surrounded by imagery of Manhattan and this knowledge that he's like the guy who sort of who won the Vietnam War and who did all of this and sort of was kind of the motivator behind the terrorist attack that killed her parents. I just she must have a little bit of an odd relationship with the idea of him, maybe. Like I'm just I'm just it, surely that's gonna got to play into it as well somehow. So it's such a jumble. I'm just realizing that when I, I last time I was on the show I uh, I expressed my disbelief that uh, Angela was unfamiliar with who Laurie was and that she seemed to not know everything. And now I, I, think, uh, I think that was a show. She was putting that on because she must know everything about Dr. Manhattan. I mean, well, I don't think it's guaranteed that Manhattan would tell her about all his exes because she might well, be happy yeah, to hear it. It might have been <laughs> purposeful. It's like really he, he shied her off. If she was like interested in getting a book about the crime busters, like Cal subconsciously really trying to steer it away from that. Don't yeah, read up on my ex. Interesting. Strange. Nice bit, nice bit of foreshadowing, by the way. Do you remember Angela spoiling the ending of a book that Cal was reading in like things fall four? apart? Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> gestures forwards at Manhattan's whole uh, predestination thing. Anyway, unrelated to that, but just because we're approaching this sort of an hour, I just wanted to say um, uh, two things regarding the whole Laurie and Jane exchange. Number one, uh, Jane went full cartoon villain this week. She was riding the pale horse of obvious evil, and she had like the the trap door, of course. And Laurie kind of had the idiot ball because she was just sitting there being like oh my god what if this whole what if this is the whole plan and then she's kind of sitting there while the obviously evil jane is just like hey hey what's up i buy laurie like narrating her um knowing a plan because that's what she did at the start of ep3 and it's kind of an arrogant world weary thing that suits her like her just feeling safe enough to say oh i've worked out your plan and here's your plan but i don't buy when that chair started moving her not jumping up and going what the hell and running out like, she's a former superhero. Like, she was acting pretty dumb there. Yeah, that, I think that was just, uh, that was an excuse for exposition, especially after she did that, you know, oh, is this what the plan is? She did that twice in the same episode. I feel like, you know, it's kind of obvious that she's the B-plot. The cavalry might use Laurie as a bargaining chip to kind of get Manhattan to comply. If he still has any lingering, <laughs> if he doesn't uh, want to be killed, he might sort of step into their cage or whatever. I think uh, what Looking Glass is going to save Laurie and not Angela. Because um, I know the 7K are like going to try and handle both those people, but it just it feels more right to me, given his exchanges with her, that it's going to end up being Laurie he's saving. And also it feels like B-plot, C-plot stuff, like Nate was saying, whereas... 
other characters should be configured around Manhattan. I don't really see also obviously the one to save Angela will be Lube Man. So, you know, oh. there's no other way it can turn oh. out. Oh. You're right. Yeah. Sliding in to save the day. <laughs> Actually, maybe Lube Man is Ozymandias. <laughs> That's how they're going to close that that end. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, I, I expect that if we get an answer to Lou Man, it will be an extremely offhand mention, like uh, like we got with Lady True's daughter slash mother. That was, you know, like we were speculating yeah. about that, and then it was just kind of like, oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, well, whatever. Or you'll see, like, Petey packing up the, the silver leotard into his suitcase again. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve bags of lube. If Laurie um, and him live happily ever after, maybe he tries to bring it out. Like Captain Metropolis with the mask style. <laughs> <laughs>